Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. On this program, we look to the nexus of policy, politics, and technology, particularly at this time of innovation. Today, we're going to take a look at one of the great innovators, less known, but a hugely important person in innovation. His inventions affect almost everything we do in daily life, and we don't know his name particularly. It is Richard Morley. He died in 2017 and left a considerable mark from the floppy disk to non-skid braking to his great invention, which was really automating the controllers, the things in factories that run things, and therefore pushed automation far ahead. To discuss Dick Morley, who I was lucky enough to meet, I have with me George Mikowski, Professor of Computer Science at Missouri S&T, Patricia E. Moody, co-author of The Technology Machine, which he wrote in conjunction with Dick Morley and Ken Ball, a retired engineer, old friend of mine, and a friend and collaborator with Richard Morley. George, would you like to tell us who Dick was and why he's so important? Well, he was a, a free spirit, free thinker, very creative person who inspired a lot of um, other people, including uh, me. Uh, and he really was responsible for bringing the programmable logic controller uh, out in, into the open. And I think a, a lot of people are not aware how important this is. This was the, a, a real key step in automating um, factory manufacturing and, uh, and in many other systems. It's, it's almost like electricity now. There, there are millions and billions of programmable logic controllers everywhere doing all sorts of operations. And that was one of the key inventions that uh, Dick Morley worked on. He also worked on things like the um, automatic braking system in cars. So he was kind of very influential and contributed to very important products that everybody uses every day. But he was also a mentor and a financier. He was a successful businessman, not just an inventor. Uh, what were some of the companies that he was affiliated with or created? Well, he, he, he had a company of his own called Bedford Associates, and they spun out a, a company called Modicon, which uh, commercialized the programmable logic controller, which was then purchased by various other companies and exists today within the group Schneider. Well, I want to go to Patricia. You wrote a book with Dick Morley, and it was called what? It was called The Technological Century. Or, there we have a copy of it. Hold it up clearly so we can see it. The Technology Machine. Tell us about the book. I've read, I've read the first chapters of it. I haven't finished reading it. I'm enjoying it enormously. It was actually written 20 years ago, wasn't it? It was the most fun. I've ever had working on a book. It was um, well received by our editor. We were very lucky to have a, an, um, I would say a notorious editor at the Free Press, which is now part of Simon & Schuster, whose name was Bob Wallace. 
and um, he just let us go loose. He just turned us loose. We gave him an idea of what we were concerned about, which was how manufacturing will work in the year 2020. And we just went at it and um, handed it in to him after about a year. It's usually nine months to a year. And um, he said, we nailed it. Oh, so cool. it was good. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Um, a little bit difficult at times because we wanted to write about what we thought was going to happen with a very difficult range of subjects from AI to paint shops to workers to um, the internet. And so that's where the wild cards came from, where we made some predictions about what manufacturing was going to look like. Um, and the last time I looked at those predictions, we hit it about 93% um, accuracy. And you yourself, uh, not just a writer, you, you worked in a factory. You started as a factory girl, I believe. That's right. My nickname is the Mill Girl. And uh, my mother was the real Mill Girl. She worked in a um, shoe shop. My father worked in a paper mill. And so I kind of grew up with that behind me. One of my first memories is my father picking me up to look inside the guts of a pulper machine at um, a paper mill in Pepperell, which was about 20 miles from the barn in Mason, New Hampshire, where we would later work on the book. Um, and the other people I have in my background had mill association. And then, of course, there's Paul Moody, the guy who... Um, did the mill in Waltham, Mass. in 1814 and then took that technology up to Lowell. Um, he's one of my big heroes. So yeah, I've got that. And then I worked, as I said uh, in a note, um, in various factories and I bought my crystal, my condo and my china from working in production and then into consulting in manufacturing and I later on got credited with saving Johnson & Johnson during the Tylenol poisoning crisis because I got on the plane and forced them to make a decision about turning production back on um, after the poisoning, they were sort of paralyzed. They weren't accustomed to making that kind of a decision and I knew if they didn't do it, the backlog would grow and their competitors would completely take over. Uh, let's go now to Ken Ball. I'm eternally grateful to you, Ken, for introducing me to Dick Morley and for taking me up to his home uh, where the barn was. And I had a wonderful afternoon moving earth remotely with a backhoe from a computer. Uh, it was the most fun. I mean, this was a big backhoe with a track on it. This was not a toy and it moved a lot of earth very efficiently. I was less efficient at the operation but once you got the bucket in the right place, it lifted a lot of earth. How did you meet uh, Dick Morley and, and did you work with him yourself? I worked with him on various projects from time to time. I uh, met Dick because I was involved with the purchase of Programmable Controls magazine for the Instrument Society. Uh, I bought it off the two founders in the Detroit area. And of course that became the market center for programmable controllers in the automotive industry. 
when did he invent the the programmable controller and why is he known as the father of automation uh getting into the programmable controllers he attended mit for four years but did not take some of the required uh classes and never graduated and as uh, pat or anyone can tell dick had a big impish grin half the time when you talk to him and he would like to say he was an mit dropout well he he enjoyed the fun of inventing yes so much so what i recall of him fun was what he was about he rode yeah. a harley davidson motorcycle he played around with this programmed earth-moving machine uh, all sorts of toys and ideas george yeah. about how does invention work how did morley invent well did he have eureka moments well he he, 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 he he might have had eureka moments but that isn't uh but i never witnessed one but what i did witness uh, with dick is he would come out with what sounded like outrageous statements and in fact one of the early things i remember is him getting up addressing an audience and the first thing he said is 80 percent of what i'm going to tell you is wrong it was almost a socratic method he would sort of challenge people and throw out what seemed at first glance kind of outrageous statements but when but it did get people to think about it and um so so i think he did have eureka moments internally but it was a lot it wasn't as dramatic as archimedes running down the street yelling eureka um uh, you yourself well, uh, are no slouch at innovation and have a very distinguished career and um, how did you come up against morley and and how did you work together well i i came up against morley through a colleague of mine who met him at a conference and then um somehow we ended up taking a trip to the barn uh, and we might just explain to people the barn was an old barn behind the right, house. It, it, and when it was you got into it, you realized it had been modified into an office. Right. Well, it was a giant garage in the bottom. That's where he kept his backhoes and, and other equipment. And the and motorcycle. Then, and motorcycles and, and, and an automobile or two. And then up the upper level. Uh, was an office and even above that was a, a guest uh, bedroom that you could occasionally host people in so it was really a, a, a very cozy setup and i visited him over quite a few years uh, and we would always have very interesting discussions and he was interested in everything uh, very opinionated um, not always correct <laughs> but but very inspiring and, and, and the thing about him was he was not afraid to, to be wrong. I think that was exactly. an important part of his success was that he would kind of toss an idea out and then modify it and keep sort of changing it. And, um, and uh, one of the things he was working on at that time was this whole topic of chaos theory and its application to manufacturing. He organized a number of uh, conferences and I attended some and spoke at some. So it, it, it was just, it was a great person to be around, very inspiring. Patricia, give us an example of one of the things that has changed. We know about the manufacturing, but aside from that, 
how did he come to be involved in such disparate things as the floppy disk and uh, making a, a backhoe work remotely? I think he was an experiential sort of guy that um, would kind of go along. Uh, we talked about not seeing eureka moments, but I think he would get an idea um, and then go play with it and see if it worked or not. So I know that's what he did with the backhoe. Um, when he talked about something that I think was huge for manufacturing, which was the GM paint shop, um, he talked about it as if we were right there watching the cars getting painted and moving along, kind of chugging along partially on an assembly line. And we could compare that to what we knew about the way assembly lines were being structured and pulled together at the time that we wrote the book. And if you compare that now to what you can see in videos of, for example, a BMW paint shop, it is integral to the manufacturing flow. It's not a separate building, it's not, um, very separate technology. It doesn't hold up production. It is smooth and um, probably what he wanted to see us eventually get to. But getting to that point was horrendous, was painful, was um, very expensive. And some people just didn't survive that kind of a change. Um, even though what he did with his co-engineers at GM didn't really last. It wasn't, a, a, I would say, a permanent change, tended to be more like a demonstration experiment. We learned a lot from it. And GM, of course, learned a lot from it. And so did BMW and the auto, other automotive manufacturers. And this was the automation of the painting of cars on the assembly line. It was, yes, it was an automation. Uh, it did not guarantee that what people would eventually see for uh, flows would be totally synchronous end to end because we weren't at the point with automotive of being able to do absolutely every part of the process end to end with no interruptions. And in fact, many manufacturers now still struggle with that idea, but it's got to do with the money and it's got to do with quality. And that was one of the things that, that his concept was working on is instead of talking about a, what Wheelwright at Harvard used to call rubber mallet and a two by four in, in manufacturing, we wanted to see everything get done perfectly the first time and smoothly and out the door. And that's what he had in the back of his head. He, he knew that we could establish a, a single flow multi-model mix, which is absolutely incredible. Um, with just perfect paint application the first time. It's, it's, it was crazy at the time. George? One thing that I, I, I want to make sure people understand is, as far as I know, Dick was not really an employee of any company. He had his own consulting right. company. Yes. And so one of the things when you ask, like, how did he get into something? He had a large number of companies that were clients of his and they would come to him with various problems and he would produce some kind of solution. So I think that one of the reasons he got into a lot of things is like, uh, you know, he would actually be on retainer 
to some of the large companies and any time they had a problem they didn't quite know what to do with somebody would say hey why don't you call dick morley ken how long did dick we seem to call him dick or morley interchangeably and i noticed people talking about him do that too so it's all right for us to do it but uh, how long did dick live there and how long was the barn going was that over a very long period of years it seemed to be yeah, I think uh, the barn was active uh, center for New England technology uh, for probably two to three decades anyway. Uh, it was up and underway well in the early 80s when I first started visiting uh, and uh, he was still operating out of the barn in the mid-90s, uh, although uh, having some health problems. But I'd like to point out two things, uh, if I can. On the uh, programmable controller, uh, the problem was all this programming, six months, a uh, couple hundred thousand dollars, Dick's experience in the machine shops said, why do I do that? And when we go from job to job, too much of this software we're programming is the same kind of stuff. So he ended up with utilizing a ladder logic and a uh, programming unit that could be handled by shop electricians as well as shop engineers and the programming was reduced from six months to six days and you can appreciate the cost savings there regarding what pat's talking about the truck and bus dick uh gained the respect of one of the top general motors production supervisor ever, a guy by the name of Ernie Valhalla. Ernie estimates that he oversaw the installation of $15 billion in production lines and transfer lines in his career. Once Ernie saw what Dick was doing, and it happened to be the truck and bus, or the truck line at Fort Wayne, Indiana, initially, uh, he just gained a uh, talk about two top guys with mutual respect. He and Ernie were good, and both of them were Harley Davidson <laughs> motorcyclists. But uh, on the truck and bus, the installation saved that division a million dollars a year in paint changeovers. Uh, they had seven to 10 lines. Uh, Pat may remember more detail. Uh, that, 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 I think that, that, that's interesting, but I'd like to get onto the human side. Did he worry about the impact on people? What was his interaction? Maybe this is one for Patricia. What was his interaction with the workers at GM, for example? and the unions at GM. 
I don't think I can speak to whatever was going on with the, his relationship with the unions, uh, George. I can say that um, his interest generally about people in manufacturing was that their world was going to change. And mostly what we said in the book is here are some of the areas that it will, you will see already changing and here's what the results are going to be. One of the things was that he envisioned, as I saw at Next Computer when I went out to their early production setup, that people were going to be more, um, there were going to be more engineers and fewer people like my mother was, which was a peace worker. Um, in fact, Steve Jobs bragged about the fact that all his production people, early stages for Next Computer, were PhDs. That was a little bit inaccurate, but it was real close. Um, and I think what Ken, uh, what um, Morley saw was that there would be fewer people and he specifically um, talked about what kind of systems we would see replacing those people. And he also described that they, they would be um, engineers, programmers, AI specialists, uh, material specialists. And one of the things that I talked about in the book is they would become innovators, innovation, new product development people, because that's our advantage right now anyway. So um, it was kind of trying to describe a very different landscape. Well, uh, George. Uh, yeah. Can, can uh, the great inventors. In, oh, you have something to say? Go ahead yeah, and say Yeah, it. one of the things that Morley did is he would kind of look at questions in both directions because, you know, he would often say people have a correlation and they kind of assume one is the cause of the other. So on this whole point of automation, one of his points was he thinks that um, automation did not push people out of jobs people didn't want to do those jobs anymore. And so automation was kind of pulled. In other words, as people not wanting to do a lot of the grunt hard work kind of inspired automation to come in rather than automation coming in and pushing the people out of work. Now one can debate, you know, which caused which, but I think um, Morley's viewpoint was also kind of very provocative because it did make you think about what really caused what, what was the cause and what was the effect and to what extent were the two kind of uh, involved in a feedback mechanism where, you know, certain work became un unproductive and then automation stepped in, which kind of affected it. So it's a more complicated um, analysis. George, where does, where does Morley fit in, uh, Dick Morley, Richard Morley? in historically, with the great figures of history. Um, and uh, does he have a place, say, somewhere between Stevenson and Bessemer and, uh, 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 you know, on up into the 20th century? You've had these very large figures that have changed everything. Of course, uh, Edison dominates, but there have been others. And even to this day where we have... Uh, Elon Musk doing extraordinary things. These are great individuals. That's one question. The other question is how important to innovation is the individual and how much can it be a collegiate undertaking? 
Well, th those are complicated questions to give easy answers to. Uh, but so much of modern society depends on kind of fundamental things like electricity. You know, most people don't really walk around and flip on the light and say, wow, this is amazing. But if, if you took somebody from several centuries ago and brought them in and showed them how lights go on and off, they would think it was, it was just amazing. Um, so, like, for example, there are really great thinkers and inventors like uh, Claude Shannon, who invented information theory, which underlies all of modern communications. And again, you know, most people don't know about him. And, but the fact that you can talk reliably, that we're having this video conference, all of this depends on Shannon's information theory. The programmable logic controller is just huge. I mean, there's so, it's, it's used in so many places, so many processes. The fact that manufacturing can now produce so much. I mean, like when I wonder, like I, you buy a can of something and you buy it for 50 cents because of like the programmable logic controller. I mean, I could take a group of 20 people and they'd say, here, make this can. And they, I mean, if you tried to make your can from scratch, I mean, it, you'd get nowhere, you know? So there's been this whole big process of, of many people contributing. And I think Dick, both through his specific inventions and through his inspiration to, to other people, I think his impact has been huge on societies and engineering, but how to compare it to others, it's, it's, it's very difficult to say, you know, he, he's up here and Edison's number one. And Let's go back to my second of the complex two questions. Um, and that is how important is the individual? Morley would suggest that it was, he was hugely important. Have we got to a time where everything is so complicated, we need teams of people to innovate? Well, I think Morley, even with the programmable logic controllers, sort of understood that sometimes the time is right for something to happen. And and maybe if it wasn't Dick, it would have been some, somebody else, but he happened to be the right person at the right time that kind of crystallized that. So, I mean, you can't, for example, have a programmable logic controller if you don't have electricity. You know, so so there's there certain things can't happen until other things happen. Like Charles Charles Babbage had the idea for a computer, and he tried to make a mechanical computer, and 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 he would say he 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 wanted to have steam create these calculations, but they just didn't have the technology, the the tolerances that they needed to achieve, were just not possible in his day and age and he didn't have electrical circuits so even though he had the idea it was it was not fully born because of the limitations around it so i just want to note that december 1st is his birthday so we're taping this the day before his birthday and also we're going to do an expanded tribute on december 16th so if anybody's interested in more information about dick morley go to my website docgm.com docgm.com. That's our show for today. We'll be back next week. Meanwhile, wear your mask and uh, enjoy your confinement. You don't have to dress up when you're at home. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, 
Stitcher, wherever you listen, we are there.